Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 4 God and Comparative Religion Part 1 I was once escorted over the Roman foundations of an ancient British city by a professor who said something that seems to me a satire on a good many other professors. Possibly the professor saw the joke, though he maintained an iron gravity, and may or may not have realized that it was a joke against a great deal of what is called comparative religion. I pointed out a sculpture of the head of the sun with the usual halo of rays, but with the difference that the face in the disc, instead of being boyish like Apollo, was bearded like Neptune or Jupiter. Yes, he said, with a certain delicate exactitude. That is supposed to represent the local god Sol. The best authorities identify Sol with Minerva, but this has been held to show that the identification is not complete. That is what we call a powerful understatement. The modern world is madder than any satires on it. Long ago, Mr. Belloc made his burlesque Don say that a bust of Ariadne had been proved by modern research to be a Silenus. But that is not better than the real appearance of Minerva as the bearded woman of Mr. Barnum. Only both of them are very like many identifications by the best authorities on comparative religion. And when Catholic creeds are identified with various wild myths, I do not laugh or curse or misbehave myself. I confine myself decorously to saying that the identification is not complete. In the days of my youth, the religion of humanity was a term commonly applied to comptism, the theory of certain rationalists who worshipped corporate mankind as a supreme being. Even in the days of my youth, I remarked that there was something slightly odd about despising and dismissing the doctrine of the Trinity as a mystical and even maniacal contradiction, and then asking us to adore a deity who is a hundred million persons in one God, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. But there is another entity, more or less definable, and much more imaginable than the many-headed and monstrous idol of mankind. And it has a much better right to be called, in a reasonable sense, the religion of humanity. Man is not indeed the idol, but man is almost everywhere the idolater. And these multitudinous idolatries of mankind have something about them in many ways more human and sympathetic than modern metaphysical abstractions. If an Asiatic god has three heads and seven arms, there is at least in it an idea of material incarnation bringing an unknown power nearer to us and not farther away. But if our friends Brown, Jones, and Robinson went out for a Sunday walk, were transformed and amalgamated into an Asiatic idol before our eyes, they would surely seem farther away. If the arms of Brown and the legs of Robinson waved from the same composite body, they would seem to be waving something of a sad farewell. 
If the heads of all three gentlemen appeared smiling on the same neck, we would hesitate even by what name to address our new and somewhat abnormal friend. In the many-headed and many-handed oriental idol there is a certain sense of mysteries becoming at least partly intelligible, of formless forces of nature taking some dark but material form. But though this may be true of the multiform god, it is not so of the multiform man. The human beings become less human by becoming less separate. We might say less human in being less lonely. The human beings become less intelligible as they become less isolated. We might say with strict truth that the closer they are to us, the farther they are away. An ethical hymn book of this humanitarian sort of religion was carefully selected and expurgated on the principle of preserving anything human and eliminating anything divine. One consequence was that a hymn appeared in the amended form of Nearer Mankind to Thee, Nearer to Thee. It always suggested to me the sensations of a strap hanger during a crush on the tube. But it is strange and wonderful how far away the souls of men can seem when their bodies are so near as all that. The human unity with which I deal here is not to be confounded with this modern industrial monotony and hurting, which is rather a congestion than a communion. It is a thing to which human groups left to themselves, and even human individuals left to themselves, have everywhere tended by an instinct that may truly be called human. Like all healthy human things, it has varied very much within the limits of a general character, for that is characteristic of everything belonging to that ancient land of liberty that lies before and around the servile industrial town. Industrialism actually boasts that its products are all of one pattern, that men in Jamaica or Japan can break the same seal and drink the same bad whiskey, that a man at the North Pole and another at the South might recognize the same optimistic label on the same dubious tinned salmon. But wine, the gift of gods to men, can vary with every valley and every vineyard can turn into a hundred wines without any wine once reminding us of whiskey. And cheeses can change from county to county without forgetting the difference between chalk and cheese. When I am speaking of this thing, therefore, I am speaking of something that doubtless includes very wide differences. Nevertheless, I will here maintain that it is one thing. I will maintain that most of the modern botheration comes from not realizing that it is really one thing. I will advance the thesis that before all talk about comparative religion and the separate religious founders of the world, the first essential is to recognize this thing as a whole, as a thing almost native and normal to the great fellowship that we call mankind. This thing is paganism and I propose to show in these pages that it is the one real rival to the Church of Christ. Comparative religion is very comparative indeed. That is, it is so much a matter of degree and distance and difference that it is only comparatively successful when it tries to compare. When we come to look at it closely, we find it comparing things that are really quite incomparable. We are accustomed to see a table or catalogue of the world's great religions in parallel columns, until we fancy they are really parallel. We are accustomed to see the names of the great religious founders all in a row, Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But in truth, this is only a trick, 
Another of these optical illusions by which any objects may be put into a particular relation by shifting to a particular point of sight. Those religions and religious founders, or rather those whom we choose to lump together as religions and religious founders, do not really show any common character. The illusion is partly produced by Islam coming immediately after Christianity in the list. As Islam did come after Christianity and was largely an imitation, of Christianity. But the other Eastern religions, or what we call religions, not only do not resemble the Church, but do not resemble each other. When we come to Confucianism at the end of the list, we come to something in a totally different world of thought. To compare the Christian and Confucian religions is like comparing a theist with an English squire, or asking whether a man is a believer in immortality, or a hundred percent American. Confucianism may be a civilization, but it is not a religion. In truth, the Church is too unique to prove herself unique. For most popular and easy proof is by parallel, and here there is no parallel. It is not easy, therefore, to expose the fallacy by which a false classification is created to swamp a unique thing, when it really is a unique thing, as there is nowhere else exactly the same fact so there is nowhere else exactly the same fallacy. But I will take the nearest thing I can find to such a solitary social phenomenon in order to show how it is thus swamped and assimilated. I imagine most of us would agree that there is something unusual and unique about the position of the Jews. There is nothing that is quite in the same sense an international nation, an ancient culture scattered in different countries but still distinct and indestructible. Now, this business is like an attempt to make a list of nomadic nations in order to soften the strange solitude of the Jew. It would be easy enough to do it, by the same process of putting a plausible approximation first, and then tailing off into totally different things thrown in somehow to make up the list. Thus, in the new list of nomadic nations, the Jews would be followed by the gypsies, who at least are really nomadic, if they are not really national. Then the professor of the new science of comparative nomadics could easily pass on to something different, even if it was very different. He could remark on the wandering adventure of the English, who had scattered their colonies over so many seas, and call them nomads. It is quite true that a great many Englishmen seem to be strangely restless in England. It is quite true that not all of them have left their country for their country's good. The moment we mention the wandering empire of the English, we must add the strange exiled empire of the Irish, for it is a curious fact to be noted in our imperial literature that the same ubiquity and unrest which is a proof of English enterprise and triumph is a proof of Irish futility and failure. Then the professor of nomadism would look round thoughtfully and remember that there was great talk recently of German waiters, German barbers, German clerks, Germans naturalizing themselves in England and the United States and the South American republics. The Germans would go down as the fifth nomadic race. The words wanderlust and folk wandering would come in very useful here, for there really have been historians who explained the Crusades by suggesting that the Germans were found wandering, as the police say, in what happened to be the neighborhood of Palestine. Then the professor, feeling he was now near the end, would make a last leap in desperation. He would recall the fact that the French army has captured nearly every capital in Europe, 
that it marched across countless conquered lands under Charlemagne or Napoleon. And that would be wonderlust, and that would be the note of a nomadic race. Thus he would have his six nomadic nations all compact and complete, and would feel that the Jew was no longer a sort of mysterious and even mystical exception. But people with more common sense would probably realize that he had only extended nomadism by extending the meaning of nomadism, and that he had extended that until it really had no meaning at all. It is quite true that the French soldier has made some of the finest marches in all military history, but it is equally true, and far more self-evident, that if the French peasant is not a rooted reality, there is no such thing as a rooted reality in the world. Or in other words, if he is a nomad, there is nobody who is not a nomad. Now that is the sort of trick that has been tried in the case of comparative religion and the world's religious founders, all standing respectably in a row. It seeks to classify Jesus as the other would classify Jews, by inventing a new class for the purpose and filling up the rest of it with stopgaps and second-rate copies. I do not mean that these other things are not often great things in their own real character and class. Confucianism and Buddhism are great things, but it is not true to call them churches, just as the French and English are great peoples, but it is nonsense to call them nomads. There are some points of resemblance between Christendom and its imitation in Islam. For that matter, there are some points of resemblance between Jews and Gypsies. But after that, the lists are made up of anything that comes to hand, of anything that can be put in the same catalog without being in the same category. In this sketch of religious history, with all decent deference to men much more learned than myself, I propose to cut across and disregard this modern method of classification, which I feel sure has falsified the facts of history. I shall here submit an alternative classification of religion or religions, which I believe would be found to cover all the facts, and, what is quite as important here, all the fancies. Instead of dividing religion geographically, and, as it were, vertically, into Christian, Muslim, Brahmin, Buddhist, and so on, I would divide it psychologically, and, in some sense, horizontally into the strata of spiritual elements and influence that could sometimes exist in the same country or even in the same man. Putting the church apart for the moment, I should be disposed to divide the natural religion of the mass of mankind under such headings as these. God, the gods, the demons, the philosophers. I believe some such classification will help us to sort out the spiritual experiences of men much more successfully than the conventional business of comparing religions, and that many famous figures will naturally fall into their place in this way, who are only forced into their place in the other. As I shall make use of these titles or terms more than once in narrative and allusion, it will be well to define at this stage for what I mean them to stand. And I will begin with the first, the simplest and the most sublime, in this chapter. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, 
turning, we come round right.